Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Andrew Teacher, founder of Blackstock Consulting. Now, Ian Marcus OBE is a name that's known to pretty much everybody in the European real estate market. He was chairman of real estate investment banking at Credit Suisse for 30 years. He's been president of the BPF, chair of the Princess Regeneration Trust, and his many current roles include chairing Cambridge University Land Society and acting as senior advisor for East Dill, one of the most dynamic and fast-growing advisory firms out there. Now, I've had the pleasure of knowing Ian for about 15 or 16 years, and he's been a great friend uh, and advisor to me, as he has been for so many people over the years. It's a real privilege to have him join us today on this propcast. And in this conversation that we recorded a little bit earlier on, he talked extensively around everything, really, from what we've learned and not learned from the global financial crisis, how he sees the future for lending and the repricing we're likely to see in the commercial real estate market. He talked in depth about his various roles, including acting as chair of East Steel and as non-exec director on the boards of companies like Secure Income Reap. And he also offered some reflections on what the property sector should be doing on things like ESG and around some of the current pressures it faces uh, with some of the governance issues being levelled at the RICS. So anyway, look, please enjoy this fantastic conversation. Please do uh, subscribe to PropCast on Spotify and Apple and and get in touch and send us some views. Um, But thanks a lot for listening and enjoy the conversation with Ian Marcus. So Ian, you're currently European Chair of East Steel, uh, among uh, uh, nearly a dozen, 11 other things. Weren't you meant to be retiring? Well, Retiring is a strange word. I mean, my wife doesn't want me at home and my golf's not good enough, so I might as well do something I uh, really enjoy. Um, She describes me as full-time, part-time, and I'm just very lucky, and it's more by luck than judgment. I found myself with this plethora of different roles. Uh, You can call them non-exec, senior advisor, consultant, mentor, whatever you want, but they all have three things in common whether they're the public companies, the private, the charitable, the startups, they're all intellectually challenging and stimulating. So I'm still learning every day. They're all with people I like and trust. And above all, and maybe the third thing should be the first thing, they're all fun. So while mm-hmm. you're having fun, you know, why, why stop? And uh, the lines over time become blurred between clients and friends and between work and play. And uh, so I'm doing what I enjoy and people seem to appreciate it. So I see no reason to slow down. And uh, the only thing that may begin to impact that is I now have the joy of four young grandchildren aged between uh, uh, nearly four and two. And uh, as they grow up, there's certainly a desire and intention to spend more time with them. Uh, So that will probably be the, the handbrake to the accelerator of, uh, zooming up to the west end mm. well you know it's, it's a, a, a good good portfolio of things i mean i, I guess mm. let, i mean let's talk a bit about secure income re- I, they, they've obviously had a bit of a, a tough year as everybody has um where where do you see that business and 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 how secure can any income be in the current climate well i think certainly there has been a reassessment of what credit risk is And I think uh, we've all had a wake-up call as to how we analyse it and uh, how we interpret it. But secure income REIT, you've got to look beyond that. I think that uh, Nick Leslaw, Mike Brown and Sandy Gum are one of the most accomplished management teams in the sector. Their track record speaks for itself in terms of moving in and out of public and private vehicles, externally managed, internally managed they've arbitraged the opportunities fantastically well, always to the benefit of their 
investors. They have always been significant investors themselves, so there's an alignment of interest. And we have a board there, which includes many people you all know, like Martin Moore and Jonathan Lane. And so as a group, it's an extremely uh, enjoyable place uh, and intellectually stimulating place to, to be. Uh, Nick and the team are always assessing uh, what the opportunities are, and uh, we will never stand still. There have been one or two um, challenging moments during uh, COVID, obviously with our hospitality and uh, leisure exposure, but we're already seeing our way through that. And uh, uh, I think uh, it's been a great example of uh, managing your exposure, both assets and liabilities, and looking at the opportunities. And I think, and you uh, could say, and, and also potentially, actually, quite a good example of of of, of what you know, when we look at what's wrong with the fund management side of of, of the industry, you know, that is kind of what good looks like, isn't it? Being resilient through a crisis. I think it has its place. I mean, you know, you can you can have a totally different perspective and be more opportunistic and take advantage of the cyclicality of the market, but we do believe that for a certain type of investor that certainty, longevity of uh, income is of huge appeal. Uh, and as, as your opening comment was, you know, how you assess credit will change and has done immeasurably. But uh, I'm very confident that uh, the secure income rate is in a good place. And uh, as I say, we're lucky enough to have probably one of the best management teams around to guide us through these challenging times. And, and I guess the other absolutely top class management team that you, you've been working with for a, for a number of years now is is Eastil. Um, the team there uh, have, have been going all guns, haven't they, for for ten years now in England and Europe. What 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 does day to day look like there? Um, they're obviously on a they've obviously been on a huge expansion drive in recent times. Mm-hmm. It's an astonishing journey, and it's a story worth telling, particularly rather poignantly just uh, at the moment, because uh, our founder, Ben Lambert, who uh, established the firm in 1967, unfortunately passed away just a few weeks ago. So it's made us all think about what his aims, objectives and vision were when he established the company, which was really very simply, he saw then that there were these two parallel universes of real estate and capital markets, and the two didn't talk to each other. So And remember, as I say, this is 1967. He said, I'm going to create a real estate investment bank that brings those together. And the rest, as they say, is history uh, 50 odd years later. But he was originally Um, a sculptor, though, wasn't he? He he had a a much and varied past. I think he he did a a major at art at Brown University. He did. uh, He's very attached to Brown. And then he went into the uh, uh, what you and I would know as the schmutter business, uh, the the, the tailoring (laughs) business for many years, and then found himself on Wall Street working for a broking firm called Eastman Dillon, and that's where the name comes from, and when he had this view. And remember, he was only in his late 20s at the time. And I think it's been an astonishing journey. And when they came to Europe, it was a time, if I can be quite direct and crude about this, that uh, the, the global investment banks in Europe did not regard real estate as a core business. And obviously, I spent most of my career in that world, so I saw it firsthand. And the the broking fraternity, whose knowledge of real estate uh, is absolutely uh, sound and fundamental, but your average chartered surveyor, when you start talking about cost of capital and use of leverage, uh, would struggle. And uh, that ability to uh, 
to bring together both the real estate and the capital markets, uh, luck or judgment, he still found itself in the right place at the right time. Uh, with, of course, a lot of their US clients coming to Europe, and they were able to piggyback off that, and then growing the business from there. Now, uh, how he still has coped with these uh, immensely extraordinary times is, in a sense, quite interesting in itself. Very early on, we decided there was no point in pontificating about vaccines, lockdowns, etc. Of course, it's a conversation you have with your clients. And Above all, you are sensitive to their own personal circumstances. But what we found uh, the, the market wanted to have was real live data points. So it was much more useful to say, we've priced this, we've sold this, we've raised debt against that. This is what investors want. This is where the market is. So we made it a, a very strong point to be talking to our client base very regularly. In fact, over communicating, you could say and making sure they were aware of what we were seeing. And very quickly, the European market uh, came back and we were able to, to give them some real reference points. And uh, I think that's why, you know, in Europe, we had uh, an astonishing year. And I, I don't say that with any embarrassment uh, because we were there servicing our clients. And uh, the, the organisation continues to go from strength to strength, now having opened uh, offices in Paris and Frankfurt over the last year as well. And so, but how are they navigating those challenges of of, of pricing uh, the market? Because obviously some people are expecting a, a pretty significant drop-off over the next year or so and even in core markets. So if you're now looking at, at bringing capital in from the States to Europe at this sort of volatile time, um, where, are the, where are those data points sitting? Well, I think you went through... Um... Three stages, I'd say. I mean, when go back a year when we were first heading into lockdown and so much uncertainty, most organizations were triaging, you know, sort out your problems. How does this work operationally? Focus on your teams, etc. And we had to be very sensitive during that time. Then there was a, a, an equally interesting sort of rush of conversations of people who said, we have dry powder. We want to take advantage of this situation. And our attitude was, there's no hurry. Let these things calm down. Um, we obviously saw a huge amount of volatility in the public markets. And uh, uh, there was a discussion as to whether there was an opportunity to take advantage of those. And for a short while, there was something I, I, I christened compassionate capitalism. I think there was a reluctance to just use and abuse that opportunity because of the, the sensitivity of, uh, of individuals and organizations at that time. But now you're at that situation where um, we'll have to dig deeper, you know, almost sector by sector and geography by geography. But you are now getting to a situation where there are those who need to do something and there are those who want to do something. So uh, there is a greater crossover of uh, you know, where's an acceptable level to, uh, to undertake a transaction. So the markets uh, remain vibrant. Obviously, there is a huge difference between those sectors that are of, of a mammoth appeal, and let's broadly call them alternatives, versus those sectors which have historically been the uh, uh, the bread and butter of, of real estate investment, notably offices and retail, and to a certain extent hospitality, where there's still some degree of disconnect. But you know those those situations create opportunities. Uh, absolutely, um, absolutely, they do, and 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 obviously the alternative side is something that that you've been increasingly focused on, both in the residential space. 
um, and and increasingly in life sciences. And and we share Blackstock shares clients with with you in that regard. We're Blackstone Biomed, who who are absolutely again setting. Uh, really setting the agenda in the life sciences real estate sphere. Tell us a bit about where you see life sciences going in in the UK. Well, let's let's just step back a little bit. You're absolutely right. I mean, we uh, very casually call it sheds, beds, and meds as to where the uh, the attraction of the capital is is heading. And uh, there was a wonderful phrase by used by one head of one of the sovereign wealth funds who said, "The sieve is getting tighter, but the bucket of water is getting bigger." Well, this this funnel effect of so much global capital wanting to invest in those asset classes versus the more established ones. Um, And life sciences is is a great example. I think you do have this almost perfect storm, which is obviously this particular time. Globally, we're going to see an increased uh, focus by governments on healthcare in the broader sense. So we think there'll be a divergence of capital public sector capital away from other areas of investment, such as infrastructure, into more healthcare. Uh, Secondly, you have our universities, and we're very fortunate in this country to have some of the the leading lights uh, in terms of our uh, educational establishments, recognizing that they can commercialize and monetize their academic skills. You know, we talk about Oxford, AstraZeneca, if it's just, you know, norm, but this is, you know, one of our great uh, universities combining with, with the corporate world. And the third thing is this wave of particularly North American capital that has been involved in this sector for 15, 20 years, whether it be in Boston or on the West Coast, you know, seeing the opportunity in Europe that we're behind the, uh, the curve and, and coming over here and investing. And whether that be you know, the Blackstones and the Biomeds or Cadillac Fairview investing in White City or... Uh, Brookfield buying Harwell, all deals we've been involved in. You can see that flow of capital and the desire of these um, these uh, institutions to get exposure to this sector. And as as you know as well as I, the uh, the Biomed recapitalization was probably one of the most uh, successful fundraisings of of recent times. Just just proving the point. So I think there is this this triangle, as I say, of government, academia, and capital coming together. So uh, I see it growing. We've, we've, we talk about life sciences, and that means different things to different people. I well, mean, exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, some people are looking at GMP manufacturing. Some people mm. are, are looking at, at full-on, you know, full-on Correct. containment mm. level four, where yeah. you're... you're, and, you're and, I, and I'm not smart enough to know, you know the, the specific differences or the wet labs and the dry labs and things of that sort. What, what we're trying to see is we're, we're almost changing people's perspective. It's not just about... Um, uh, life sciences, let's call it innovation in the broader sense of which mm. life sciences, healthcare is an important ingredient, but yeah, biotech, technology, et cetera. So it's that broadening of, uh, of, of talent, and we have an excess of that here, uh, and providing them the right uh, facilities to operate within. And uh, very interestingly, we're working on an assignment at the moment for um, TPG of, of, of recapitalizing Arlington. And if you're old enough, uh, as I am, to remember Arlington when it first started in the 80s as the originator of business parks, isn't it funny how things have gone full circle and therefore an out-of-town business park with low-density offices, with car parking, with greenery, you know, is, is can be quite attractive if you can reposition and reimagine that real estate. So, as I say, it's life sciences, but the broader innovation we see uh, 
uh, increasing demand from both owners, investors and occupiers. Mm. I mean, talking about universities and talent, you still are very much in touch with your old um, your old pals in Cambridge, your chair of the Cambridge University Land Society. Um, and, and that must be quite a fulfilling engagement. Um, where, what, not so much where, but what is your advice for people coming through the academic universe right now? Mm. Not, not a it, great time to be. No, it's not. It, look, anyone. it's wonderful to be involved. They've been nagging me for about 20 years to take on the, the presidency and eventually I succumbed uh, uh, and it's been an absolute pleasure. I, this is my second year, and for obvious reasons, you normally only do one or most two, but for obvious reasons, because of the uh, uncertainty, I might end up actually doing a third year, and it'd be an absolute privilege and a pleasure. And we've got about a 1,000 members. These are people who have uh, uh, been to Cambridge and studied either land economy or architecture or are now involved in the real estate industry. And they range from literally first-year students to I just sent a a letter to uh, one of our members who just celebrated his 100th birthday. So it does cover the the waterfront. And in its small way, uh, Culls, the Cambridge University Land Society, has a crucial role because I do feel particularly uh, uh, sorry for students at this time. University life is about much more than studying, as, as you and I just about remember. And they are missing out on so much uh, in terms of the social involvement, the engagement, whether it be the sport, the leisure, the music, whatever it might be. And it's such a shame. And speaking to the head of land economy, all the lectures are online. Um, they're doing some uh, uh, some studies, uh, some tutorials face to face if they can. But it's a shame. So we're trying to provide a little bit of glue uh, for the students. We're holding a series of webinars and and other events which they can join and participate in. We're trying to help them a little bit financially uh, uh, with their dissertations and other parts of their studies, and a little bit of mentoring and career advice. We normally have a careers fair, and we did it all online this year, and very Mm. gratefully nearly 20 companies participated in that. And it's a tough, tough time for these students uh, in terms of where their careers go, what the job opportunities are. But, you know, we're trying to say to them, you know, just remain visible, you know, over communicate as best you can. Remember uh, to use your network because those students you're sitting alongside today will be the leaders of uh, our industry in later years. I mean, it's oh, amazing. For, yeah. Well, if I look at my class, it includes people you know, such as Michael Brockman at CBRE, Robin Butler at Urban and Civic, Noel Manns at Europa, uh, Simon Cook at uh, APAM. Yeah, these were all classmates 40 years ago, and, and now uh, they're leaders of our industry. So uh, it proves uh, you never know when and, and maintain the network. Oh, absolutely. And we've, we've had a couple of great grads from, from the Cambridge Land degree over the years. We, have a, we generally take an intern every year from them as well. So yeah, absolutely, mm. you know, shout out to them if they, they want some uh, in, uh, industry experience that come and, come and work with me and my team for a few months in the summer. Thank you. But, um, but look, I mean, let's, I mean let's, let's move it back to real estate. Um, this, the student housing sector has, has again, gone bananas uh, up until the last couple of years. But th- there's a lot of confidence coming back into that space uh, and, and clearly a lot of opportunity for growth across Europe in uh, purpose-built student accommodation. What, what's your view on that, Ian? Where do you see the opportunities there? I think it is an example when you look at this crisis and you've got to, as best you can, despite the 
the, the, the terrible trauma that many have experienced to, to differentiate between cyclical and structural. Um, we all hope that the health crisis is a temporary one. I have no idea about whether it's days, weeks, months, whatever. Uh, but uh, we all hope that the vaccine provides uh, some uh, get out of jail card uh, for us. So yeah, although obviously student accommodation, and, and we've just talked about the impact it's had on students, has suffered quite dramatically, as have a number of other subsectors, such as hospitality and leisure and food and beverage, etc. I do hope and anticipate that a lot of that is temporary. Um, there are there are structural changes in many aspects of our industry, and we can talk about office and retail separately there, um, which are different. But I, I think that uh, you can take a, a, a medium-term view that student accommodation will come back, that it is another example, though, of we need to start differentiating between best of breed and the rest. So the occupier, in this case, the student, will demand certain things in terms of quality, sustainability, safety for their accommodation, just as other occupiers will. And uh, if it's good enough for Blackstone uh, and John Gray to take a uh, nearly £5 billion view on the, the market when uh, they purchased IQ, IQ. last year, uh, and their view is, you know, the fundamentals of that business, you know, remain absolutely sound. Of course, there are some bumps in the road we have to get through, but the view is in in one to two years, you know, we will be back on song. And I still think the UK will be a massive magnet for students, particularly from India, China, and other parts of the world. Uh, and it's important that we provide them with the the right quality of accommodation. Mm. And and this operationalization of real estate that, that we've talked about a lot on this podcast is is obviously becoming more and more evident. What what I'd be mm. interested there, obviously, you were you European chairman of real estate investment banking at Credit Suisse when when we first met Ian about 15, 16 years ago. Um the world's changed a little bit in that time. Um, it's fair to say. Um you've you've got a few more grandkids, your your golf's better. Um <laughs> but um where 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 is the industry now in terms of, uh, I guess, measuring and, and, and valuing operational businesses? Because it, it, it's, it, it's not quite as straightforward, mm. is it, as it, as it, as it was no, it's not. 15 years ago. I'd just clarify, one of those facts you said is true and the other one isn't. And you can decide between grandkids and golf. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, the Credit Suisse bits are right, right? It wasn't Goldman Sachs. The Credit Suisse bits is right. We, we, we both have a mind, and we've had this conversation many times, that we do need to move away from this 1,000-year landlord-tenant feudal relationship and recognise we are a service provider of space and have customers. And you know, those that have adapted to that and understand it best you know, uh, have been able to respond much more readily uh, during uh, these difficult times. And many of the alternatives that we've referred to are often asset-backed operating businesses. So it's vitally important that one understands that and the risks that come along with it. It's not an easy transformation of buying a 25-year you know, with upward-only rent review piece of real estate to having something where your, your customers move in and out on a much more regular basis. And uh, that relationship needs to develop. And I think uh, yeah, it would be good if both sides met halfway. It seems at the moment that... Uh, everything is biased towards the occupier. And that's a partly a cyclical thing that you know, each side will have its moments. But uh, 
the industry is certainly up against it at the moment. And I think we have a real issue with how we value these businesses. I'm very much looking forward to the the work which Peter Pereira Gray and his team will be doing in reassessing the Red Book. I think it's 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 been a long time coming, and I can't think of anyone better to do it than the, than Peter. Um, to really assess what value means and what valuation means, because it's a very different skill. You know, when you sit in an investment bank, as I did for well over 30 years, you know, there is a skill set there of how you value businesses. And uh, for some reason, it's all about cash flow and uh, rather than a finger in the air and you know, at a point in time, what something is worth. And I think the US has, has led the way for many years in terms of how it looks at real estate, how it looks at its real estate businesses. And I think we uh, we have to move that forward if we're going to uh, really understand uh, the industries we're investing in and mm. above all, analyze the risk appropriately. And and so the, the review that Peter Pereira is doing, Peter's, Peter works at the Wellcome Trust day to day, is for the RICS, who mm-hmm. uh, obviously have not been without their traumas over the last few few months uh, many questions on governance many questions on you know where their own cash flow is is going or not going um and and some i guess broader questions really not just on the rcs around how the industry is being represented how the profession uh is being represented but what you know obviously you've been involved with all sorts of uh, various bodies over the years when 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 we met you were very heavily involved with the bpf i mean what's your view on the rics situation what's your view on how the industry has responded to to the pandemic and, and other issues over the last year well uh i only uh know what i've read as many others uh i have um sitting here on the wall of my study, uh, a diploma which says I'm an honorary uh, fellow of the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, even though I'm not technically uh, 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 a chartered surveyor. So it's an organisation which I think has a very key role to play. And I think it's extremely disappointing you know, what's come out. I have no idea what the, 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 the backstory is. But what I do know is that it it's, uh, hasn't done uh, the industry any favours in terms of its perception. And I think it's just extremely disappointing that yet again, during this crisis, you know, the industry has failed really to have any resonance with uh, Whitehall or Westminster at a time when we need to do so. And I've, yeah, uh, I have enormous regard for uh, Melanie at the BPF. Mark Mogul's been doing a great job at the Bank of England uh, and and others, and they're working strenuously hard. But as we all know you just never seem to get any uh, give from the, the the politicians and the civil servants as to what the true contribution of our industry is and the occupiers have, have fought a very uh, uh, a very strong uh, fight to uh, ensure that they're secured and i've just i just think it's important that we recognize and get a message through in a very crude way that i perfectly understand why the Chancellor has wanted to protect the occupier and protect business and protect jobs, but he has to understand that if it's totally one-sided uh, and in order to protect the occupier uh, and avoid an occupier's crisis, that an occupier's crisis can very quickly become an owner's crisis and can very quickly from there become a lender's crisis. And then we're back into much broader uh, economic consequences of, of what's going on. So. I think it was Nick Leslaw who used the rather emotive term that the industry has been castrated by government. And, and I have some sympathy to that. And I think that the one-way bet with the moratoria, et cetera, has, um, 
you know, needs to, we need to work out how we're going to unwind this. And I don't think anyone knows yet. Uh, and yet the publicity that the industry gets still continues to be very negative. And uh, it's a shame that we, over 40 years I've been involved, we've never managed to convince uh, the, the public at large or those uh, in officialdom as to the contribution, the massive contribution that our industry makes to the built environment, to sustainability, to communities and to the, the savings world. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I take some of that. I, I mean, I think certainly when we worked together, I think there were certainly many times where we did get positive engagement. And I know from personal experience, some of the work we've been doing over the last years on housing and policy around the Cambridge-Oxford arc, we're certainly getting cut through. And I, and I wonder whether a, a more focused approach that takes issue by issues uh, to task, you'd actually get a bit better cut through. Because the reality is, that real estate is such a broad church. It's such a, a an abstract concept for many people to be able to just to put a number on it and go here you go. That, that you know that you can do that in a bank. You can say, well, look, here's here's our resi portfolio. Here's here's my life sciences portfolio. Give me my promote. But I I just think it's very different in that sense. And and I, I guess where I would disagree with you and is is you know I remember um, there were a few few heated policy meetings that i was in with certainly people like Stephen hester who was never afraid of, of telling everyone what he thought but i you know, i remember some of those times where uh, i suggested a few things that were considered relatively radical back then and, and some people would would uh shout me down sustainability was one of those um mm -hmm. and that that certainly changed quite a lot hasn't it yeah it certainly has i mean it's it's very interesting if you said what are the three mega trends you're seeing one is uh globalization two is the sheer weight of money looking to come into the sector. And the third is, is ESG. Uh, there's no doubt it's it's top of everybody's agenda. And unlike uh, previous times when I think many uh, investors and participants in the market were paying lip service to it, I think they now recognise how important it is. I mean, one leader of a sovereign wealth fund talked about a brown discount now being applied to, to real estate. And certainly there is an increasing recognition from particularly European investors, maybe less so US at the moment, that there is a trade-off between economic uh, and social returns, and uh, they're trying to understand uh, what that means. So I think this is a, a huge area. And look, I'm lucky enough, as, as you and I have spoken about in the past, for the last 14 years to be involved with uh, His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, and his charitable activities. And he was talking about these issues over 40 years ago. We all thought... Uh, um, yeah, this was very strange and, and very offbeat. And of course, he's uh, absolutely been proven to be right on, on several of these areas. I, I mean, I, I just wonder whether a, a, a proper, a, a genuine, genuine, a proper, genuine and meticulous drive around ESG could actually be one of those, those routes for the real estate industry to work itself back into positive consciousness when it comes to, to government. Um but yeah, look, I, I I think you're absolutely right, but I think I don't think it's a nice to have. It's a necessity, and I think it's uh, whether it be defensive or offensive. You know, it's going to be absolutely mainstream for whether it be developers, lenders, investors uh, going forward. Doesn't it depend on your time frame though? Because if you're just coming in and out of the market in a two three year play, do you really care about what's coming down the road in 2030, 2040? As a as a you know, well, without in any sense becoming political with a capital P, you could say the same against politicians. I think that's one of the 
issues we've had with our industry that, of course, politicians think in electoral cycles, whereas for real estate, as you say, it's a longer term horizon we have to think of. Look, I, I, I get it. And if you're a fixed life fund that's supposed to invest and monetize within a five to seven year period, you must be le- you might be less conscious of that. But trust me, in terms of uh, the investors you want to sell to, the uh, customers you want to attract to occupy your buildings, your providers of debt capital, they will all have it top of your list. So you cannot ignore this going forward. And, and how, when you talk about the brown discount, the green premium, what kind of level do you think that's going to come in at? Because obviously about 10 years ago, we saw the polarization of the retail sphere between primary, secondary, tertiary. We're, we're going to now see that, aren't we, in, in offices. How, uh, how do you think the, the, the pricing is going to settle out? I, 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 I can't put a specific number on it, Andy. I think that it is much more about brown discount than green premium because I think we've, we've ignored to our peril functional obsolescence in much of our real estate. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's more reflection on me, but they're now knocking buildings down that I financed uh, as, a, as a lender in the early parts of my career, and that's never really taken into account. So I just know that the gap between prime and secondary, however you want to measure that, is going to get wider and wider. And the most obvious area you'll see that in is in offices, because who's going to determine that? It's you and me as deciding which offices we feel comfortable in a post-pandemic world actually returning to and sitting in. And therefore, you know, if that's why I think it's quite interesting to be a developer now with brand new space taking into account many of these changes and aspirations. It's quite a braver move to buy a B-minus type building and go, I'll refurbish and reposition that. I think that's quite challenging and could be uh, quite expensive. And, and I mean, looking back um, on the last cycle, what do you think some of the mistakes people are going to repeat? What, what, what are people not going to have learned from the global financial crisis? Well, it's really interesting in that, you know, we always talk about real estate being a cyclical business. And of course, there are structural changes, and we've touched on those. as Exactly, because people make the same mistakes every cycle. Of course they do. I mean, in, in certain regards. And a lot of that's to do with individuals and experience. You know, it's the Steve Redgrave, you know, um, you know uh, I'm never going to do this again. But of course, you do do this again. And uh, a lot of that's due down to people and the experiences they have. And banks had a wonderful tendency of, of, of getting rid of all the, the, the knowledge and experience they had. And the, the next brigade that came along went, it's different this time. And there are differences, as we've said, globalization, the definition of real estate, the, the return criteria, a zero interest rate environment, which none of us have really experienced before. I was brought up in a double digit interest rate environment, so it changes it. But I think the, there are some the trends. I think the sheer weight of money is a concern. Um, uh, there are, without question, going to be forced buyers. I worry, looking from afar, about this uh, uh, this whole um, uh, um, explosion of SPACs in the US. I think uh, I don't think that will end particularly happily because when you have people who've raised money and need to put it into the market, you know how is that going to work? Um, I think that uh, there is a concern that some. Uh, Asset classes are being priced too aggressively. Um, yeah, logistics still remains very much flavor of, of uh, the month, the year, probably the decade. 
but what is the real true impact of technology on on some of that? Will that impact it? And therefore, I think I'd be looking more at, you know, what's my alternative use value of of that land? You know, when my million square foot shed in the middle of nowhere has sort of passed its sell by date, mm. I I worry about some of the um, the, the the structuring issues. I'm I'm very pleased that the government is uh, uh, initiating a review of funds, which includes REITs. And I think anything which can improve liquidity in real estate is helpful. But yeah, don't forget the fundamentals that real estate is a heterogeneous, illiquid product. And if we try and make it uh, uh, homogenous and liquid, we've got many different experiences of that over the years that uh, that's not necessarily the case. Are you, are you and, calling? Are you calling death of the open-ended fund there? Uh, <laughs> not death, but I mean. Just say it as you see it. You know, what are you trying to be? And I, I've had many, many interesting, enjoyable, and sometimes fractious debates with the sponsors of IPSX as to what they're trying to do. And my my bottom line on that, because there's some very smart people and, and some very substantial sponsors of it, is if it can work, fantastic. You know, anything we can do to improve the liquidity, transparency, and professionalism of real estate is a good thing. But history dictates that, you know, uh, what we need is scale and liquidity. And, and I worry about some of these vehicles which don't provide that. And I think there'll be others that just take advantage of those opportunistic moves in pricing. Uh, and, uh, and and the aims and aspirations sort of just uh, wither on the vine. Mm. And, and in terms of, of the lending markets, um, clearly we're in a very, very different position than we were last cycle with the banks, um, much greater share of the market sitting now with 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 debt funds and alternative lenders. Is there going to be some kind of reckoning for 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 people and for some of those newer parties over the next year or two? Well, well, you're absolutely right. What we have is something very different. If you go back to the GFC and you look at the UK. Uh, I think my numbers are right, that something like two-thirds of all the lending came from seven uh, banks, which were the Irish and the Scottish banks. And mm. that that systemic risk as a consequence of that is something which the Bank of England, and I was fortunate enough to chair the Bank of England's property forum for 10 years. We talked about at length, and Mark Mogul continues uh, to do so uh, in, in that role. Uh, I don't think the, the the Bank of England, as far as I'm aware, as, uh, as an observer now from a distance, is worried about systemic risk. And if individual lending organisations decide to, you know, make mistakes, that's their problem. I don't think there's any one organisation now, as we had previously, that could undermine the fundamentals of the economy. And you have to remember, the Bank of England only regulates a very small number of organisations, and they're now probably well over 250 different lenders into uh, uh, into our market. As you say, it's, it's debt funds, it's the institutions, it's the sovereign wealth funds, it's high net worths. I'm, I'm personally more concerned philosophically about things like uh, uh, crowdfunding and peer-to-peer -peer lending, where retail investors are encouraged to come in, you know, without really a full understanding of the risks they're taking on. And uh, yeah, that that's an area which concerns me uh, uh, more than you know. If if one of the the sovereign wealth funds or one of the big PE firms debt funds has a few has a few losses along the way, um, that they're, they're big boys. I think what you will see 
there's an, an, an increased tendency for these investors to get involved in the debt product, if you like. I'm trying to move away from using terms like debt and equity. It's just capital. Where do you want to be on that spectrum in terms of risk and reward? But you know, one, one leader of a, a global uh, insurance company said to me, we're going to have a lot more debt product because, quote, 2.5% return looks quite appealing in today's market. So yeah, I, I don't think there'll be any shortage of uh, availability of credit, which, of course, is, is fundamental to making sure the market functions mm. well. And I think individual organizations will have individual issues. I think it'll be really interesting to see over the next month or two. Uh, we've had NatWest results today. We had Barclays results yesterday. Barclays announcing, I think it was £5 billion of loan loss provisions. Whether we see now we're going through another valuation cycle and this, this tendency to think we're through the worst, whether um, we will see more non-performing loans and even uh, other uh, existing performing loans being traded out as the banks try and clean up their balance sheet to, to re, re, uh, reflate the economy on the back of uh, uh, the crisis. Mm. I mean, do you see debt? emerging as as an established alternative asset class in the same hundred percent yeah absolutely um i think that uh again it's something we've learned from the us that you can play at different places in the cycle and if you look at the the 800 pound gorillas in our market the the blackstones and the brookfield they're they're doing public private debt equity core to opportunistic yeah they're they're doing the full four quadrant uh, exposure to real estate, and they've all got sleeves that can look at different uh, different opportunities in different ways. So, uh, uh, absolutely, uh, as I say, you know, whether you want to call it debt or just you know, a lower risk, lower return exposure, I think uh, that's going to increase uh, in terms of um, how um, investors gain uh, uh, presence in the real estate market. Mm. Well, it's, it's some amazing insights, and we've covered quite a lot uh, in this conversation. I mean, just to draw things to a close, Ian, maybe give us give us three predictions for the remainder of twenty twenty one. If there are you know for three things um, you think we'll see and and it will reflect on this time next year, what what would they be? Trends, events, deals, um, amazing discoveries, anything at all? Crumbs. Uh, thanks for the warning on that one. Um, I think that uh, the, the, the weight of money into real estate will continue at pace uh, without any question. When you've got $18 trillion of negative uh, yielding sovereign bonds, um, the attraction of real assets uh, is, is going to only increase. I think the, um, the lines between real estate, real assets and infrastructure will become increasingly blurred without any question at all. Uh, and I think we're going to have to recognize that the definition of real estate continues to broaden uh, because of that. Uh, and uh, as I always say to um, young graduates or, or, or young analysts uh, joining firms I'm involved in, the only good news is there'll always be a real estate industry. Look out the window. There is a built environment. And unless we're moving to an entirely virtual world, you know, there'll always be a, a market for you to operate in. Who owns it, what we do with it, and how it's financed will change, and we have to adapt to those changes. 
So we're safe until we all end up living in the matrix, basically. <laughs> so thank you once again to Ian Marcus OBE. And to listen to this and other PropCast episodes covering a wide range of key topics across the property industry, including our current series on all things ESG, uh, please do subscribe to PropCast on Apple, on Spotify. Keep checking propertyweek.com. And if you've got any requests or, or ideas, please just send us an email at info at blackstock.co.uk. You can also share your views on Twitter by tweeting at blackstock.pr and, and obviously connect with us on LinkedIn uh, and, and however you want, really. But thanks a lot for listening. I've been Andrew Teacher at Blackstock Consulting, and we'll see you again soon. Hold up. 